You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Good morning, Real Life Coleman. How's everybody doing? You know, I'm doing good. Barista told me this morning my beard was majestic. Majestic, that's right. That'll set anybody off on a fantastic day. You should all try it. For the half of you that I met. Okay. So, uh, we are in Revelation, and we have been working through one of the things we've been trying to put in front of you guys. Uh, I just go right in. You guys doing all right? Yeah. All right, good. Uh, one of the things we've been trying to put in front of you is this, uh, this mantra, this hermeneutical mantra. We want to read Revelation through a very similar hermeneutical lens to any other book of the Bible we want to read through. And so, one of the things we've been trying to show you is that John, when he writes really any piece of his literature, but in Revelation, he's got these two simultaneous agendas taking place. On the one hand, and if you were to go back and listen, by the way, to the Seven Churches of Revelation series a couple of years ago, hopefully you would hear this as well. But once this clicks, it does wonders for reading uh, the book of Revelation. It gets us out of this, e- whatever, whatever it is, that, that got us reading Revelation as this spooky future book. And I don't know if God's doing something in the future, but primarily the book has nothing to do with the future. The book was speaking to its current day. And so to understand that, on one hand, John is writing a a culturally subversive narrative to the people of his day. So if you were a Gentile convert that knew nothing about the scriptures, you would still be able to read John at Revelation, written by John. You could still read what he was doing and go, oh, that's clever. I see what he's doing there. He's doing the whole Rome thing. He's like saying that there's a new, better kingdom. and It's all there culturally. But if you're a Jew that has your Hebrew scriptures memorized, and if you were a church that had both of those together, if you have, if you have a Jew that, uh, that has the scriptures memorized, then there's another agenda, which is that John is getting all of his material for this narrative from where? Say the text. Say it louder than that. Thank you. So you have this 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 material coming from the text, but it's not just coming like that would be a thing. Like honestly, that's impressive. It's it's hard enough to write a satirical, culturally subversive narrative anyway. To be pulling all of your material from the text would be impressive enough. But it's not even that. John is pulling his material from texts that are relevant to the cultural, like, once this clicks, you're like, how, how is John pulling this off? And I know that he had help, but still, there is a, this is an impressive piece of literature. So, I want to talk about Revelation 7 today. But before we do that, I want to remind us of where Revelation 7 falls in the larger story. I know you're thinking right after 6 and right before 8. But we are in the middle of a discourse that really started maybe even earlier. But in Revelation 5, John says in this vision, there is a scroll. And only he who was worthy could open the scroll. And I wept and I wept because nobody in all the earth 
was worthy to open the scroll. The scroll had seven seals on it. And only the one who had authority could have opened up those. Not even this guy could have opened up the seals of this scroll. <laughs> Impressive, right? Yellow lines and all that cards thing going on there. But culturally uh, reference number one. Um, so as he seals that need to be, and nobody was worthy, and this voice says, don't, don't cry, don't weep, for the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so John turns to see what is this lion from the tribe of Judah? Like what is, like you're expecting Jesus with a big J on his chest and a cape? Like, mm, you guys doing okay this morning? <laughs> All right. uh, so you're expecting like this thing, but instead he sees a what? A slain lamb. And you're, what? And this, this slain lamb stands diametrically opposed to this guy. Instead of power, a different kind of power. I love the first song we sang today. Uh, uh, Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Uh, I got the last song stuck in my head again. I did this whole one. It's coming back to me. Um, um, oh, no, it's not coming back to me. I did the first song. You know, the first song we sang about the slain lamb and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and there's this, there's this refrain in the middle of the song. That every knee, there it is. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. You follow me? Yeah. That every knee. There's this weird thing when you're singing that song where you're tempted to make that like a triumphalism. Like you're tempted to make this like every knee will bow because Jesus will subjugate his enemies. Hold on to that thought because Revelation 7 is going to challenge that. How? How does every knee come to bow before a slain lamb? The lion and the lamb. There is, a, there is a way that is different than the way of Rome. The early Christians, they did not adhere to the slogan of Rome. Piety, war, victory, peace. They adhered to a different slogan. Grace, peace. Slain lamb. That's what we're doing here. And so in Revelation 6, we continued that as the seals were broken one by one, you see what happens when you take up the weight of the slain lamb. I'll tell you what you get. You get conquered. You suffer the bloodiness of war. You suffer economic injustice. And ultimately you experience death all around you. And the slain, the martyrs are seen underneath the altar. Like this whole... There's this conversation happening with John and Revelation, like, you're telling me that this works? That's, we find ourselves right in the middle of that conversation. You tracking with me? Fantastic. Revelation 7, here we go. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So even in this passage, there's this, even though the world and the chaos is swirling around you, even though everything seems to be falling apart, remember Revelation 4, God is on his throne. Not, not Caesar, not any emperor, not Domitian. God is on the throne. No matter what's going on around you, remember that it all, it all falls under he who is sovereign over all of this whole 
thing. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. Now, if anybody can tell me what's wrong with this list, extra credit to you. Aaron and I were texting back and forth this morning like, oh, we totally missed an entire sermon in here. So maybe if we can make an excuse for it, we'll circle back around and grab it later. I don't know. But, oh, good, there's something wrong with this list. 12,000 from the tribe of Machnasah. 12,000 from the tribe of Shimeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Yosef. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And John said, Hey, I'm just a visitor here. Don't ask me. I'm not in charge of this. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And hopefully by now we've done enough work that we... We, we don't automatically go, oh, the great tribulation, like happening later. No. Their tribulation. These are the ones that have come through their tribulation. They know all about tribulation. In their day. These are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So, I want to walk through, I want to race through this and pick out some culture, because I want to do the culture text. What's the first one? Culture. Second one? Text. I want to spend most of my time in text this morning, but I don't want to ignore culture because I want to do that mantra so that you get used to thinking, I read Revelation and I think culture. And so there's culture here. First of all, if you were to read this, just you don't know anything about your text. Maybe that's even some of us here this morning. Uh, you, we don't know anything about the text. All, all we know is the Greco-Roman world that we live in. Okay? And... And I see a picture of 144,000 people, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12. What am I thinking culturally? Roman, I think somebody said Roman soldiers. You're thinking of Roman legions stationed for battle. You're seeing an army. Okay? And if I think of white robes, it's a very Greco-Roman image. There's two places you're going to find white robes everywhere in the Roman Empire. One of them is in the imperial cult. Everywhere that Caesar the emperor goes... He's followed by the, tw the 24 priests of the leading legal Roman religions. There are 24 legal religions in the Roman Empire. Each one has their priestly, but like a cabinet, like a president has a cabinet. See, emperor has this religious cabinet of all the leaders of the 24 legal Roman religions. Everywhere they go, dressed in white robes with golden sashes. Okay? 
Now, everywhere else he goes, they also have a choral choir singing the imperial proclamations. Uh, one of the most famous ones that we found, referenced at least three times in history, is uh, Holy, Holy, Holy is Lord Caesar, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, I know you're thinking that's in Isaiah. It is in Isaiah. It's also in Roman propaganda, so do with that what you will. One of the other ones that we found, no other name under heaven which one can be saved except that of Caesar Augustus. One of the most prominent Roman propaganda slogans. You see, the early church, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's in the book of Acts, I mean, it's not Caesar, it's see, Jesus. Jesus, right? So, the early church is taking these slogans and they're subverting them for their own purposes. But these are, these are words that they're used to. They come across their social media. They don't have social media, but you get the idea. It's always flashing across their, you know, the side banners on Facebook and all that stuff. They're like, oh, I'll play off of that. <laughs> so, so we have we have this cultural white robes, the imperial pop. What do they see? Salvation belongs to our God. That's a very that's if you're a, a Gentile who knows nothing about your Bible, Revelation seven still speaks volumes. It's like, okay, this God has an army. This God has a priesthood. This God has is great. I understand that there's a war here. There's a spiritual battle, a heavenly battle between an Armageddon, if you will, between between what God's doing in God's kingdom and, and, and Pax Romana and Rome's kingdom. And these two are clashing. Now, let's think text. Okay? So let's go back up to the top of this text. Now, 144,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12, we can do the whole 12,000 thing, talking about it some other time, right? I need to keep moving here. But 12,000, 12,000, where's the only time you see that in the Old Numerous times, but what's the only setting where you see thousands of people tried, thousands of people tried, thousands of people tried? You see that in the census. You might think of places like the Book of Numbers, amongst many. Where they take a census of God's people. Why are they taking a census? In Numbers, why are you taking a census? Because you're about ready to walk into where? The promised land, and you need to know how many... What do you count? Do you count men, women, and children? Say no. You count fighting men. If you read book of Numbers, it'll tell you fighting men. Why? Because this is about assembling an army. You need to know... Now, if you're reading this and you're like, okay, so we have a spiritual... We have, a, we have an army being assembled here. Yes, but time out. Remember that this comes in a whole conversation about... This army swears its allegiance to the what? The slain lamb. So whatever's going on here is going to be completely different. And if you're like, wow, a battle, like 144,000 soldiers, that must be impressive. No, two chapters later in Revelation 9, spoiler alert, you're going to run into, John's going to number the opposing Roman, the worldly army. It's going to be 200 million if you do the math. So you got 144,000 to 200 million. You're outnumbered 1,400 to 1. So we have to jump a little forward to grab. But don't let like, wow, this massive army. No, 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 no. This is a small, minuscule amount of people who are standing ready, willing, and faithful to the way of the slain lamb. They are not going to be marching to battle to fight Roman wars with Roman methods, with Roman weapons. They are marching to lay down their life because that's what the slain lamb does. 
This is a totally different, and John's trying to say this thing that you are engaged in every day, where you have brothers and sisters and aunts and you have people that you know by name that have laid down their life because they refuse to offer the incense and declare emperor, lord, and god. And because of that, they were executed and gave. That, that is what we're engaged in. That's the way that we fight this battle. This, this is the... Now, he then goes on to talk about this multitude that nobody could count. So we're not talking about the 144,000. We could count them. There's 144,000. They're there. But then in the heavenlies, they're surrounded by a great multitude. Does anybody remember the uh, Hebrew series we did? Surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Right? We were told by the angel in Revelation who these were. These were those who had made it through the great tribulation. Who had washed their... These are that great cloud of witnesses. People that they had known by name. In fact, to bring this home, when we were back in Hebrews, I don't know if I preached here or in Moscow, I can't remember, but I remember asking whoever was there to consider who was in your cloud of witnesses. People that you know by name. Maybe they didn't give their physical lives, but they gave their lives that you could follow Jesus. People that you know, a grandma, an aunt, a mother, a brother, uh, a spiritual mother or father. Something that gave their, this great cloud of witnesses is standing there dressed in white robes but holding a little obscure detail that you might miss if you're not paying attention. What are they holding? Palm fronds. Why are they holding palm fronds? Because it's in the text. That, it's in the text. They're holding palm fronds because this whole time John has been referencing which Old Testament apocalyptic prophet? Say Zechariah. He's been referencing Zechariah. Well, Zechariah ends with this great vision. You see, in Zechariah 14, the last chapter of Zechariah, he paints this glorious picture about how God is restoring all things. But it begins with the destruction that they experience under Babylon. So Zechariah 14 ends with horrible news. And even as God comes to save them, it's not like, bingo, everything's happy. It's, let's, uh, let's go. Zechariah 14. This is the first part of Zechariah 14. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile. This is, sometimes the NIV like really like softens the language because it doesn't want to offend us. The prophets are very, very well acquainted with the reality of imperial conquest. They don't mince words. They are very upfront about the pain and the suffering that they went through. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. So yeah, the Lord's coming to fight. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee. What? I thought the Lord was coming to save us. Yes, because when the Lord comes to make all things right, it gets really, really messy. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. 
Zechariah starts and says, this is the world you like. I don't know if Aaron used this phrase here last week. Uh, I didn't get any help from first service, so I don't know if he used it here. But uh, he had this phrase he used with me, and I stole it from us because I loved it. Uh, God the deliverer versus God the overcomer. And, and one of the things that we struggle with here in our Americanized version of Christianity is we always want to see God the deliverer. And God does deliver, amen? He does, but not, not all the time. Or maybe, maybe you could say he's always delivering, but not the way that we ought to imagine that he delivers. Like God delivers, yes he does, but ask any of the people of the Bible, ask the Jewish people especially, ask your fathers that came before you, your elders, and they will tell you, like the scriptures tell us. Ask, ask any of them and they will tell you, God doesn't always show up as deliverer, but God always shows up as overcomer. I don't know why God doesn't always just like, boom, rescue us out of all. I have some punches, but I don't, ultimately I don't know the mind of God. I don't know why he doesn't deliver us every single time we cry out. But the one thing that God does do every single time is he shows up and he says, I'm not going anywhere. I will, I will be by your side for this whole thing. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And we're going to overcome. God the overcomer. Zechariah says, this is the mess that you find yourselves in. Now we got into this because we talked about palm thrones. Well, Zechariah's image, we're going to see it here in just a moment. Zechariah's vision ends with, the, with all the nations streaming to the temple to celebrate the festival of Booths. Or the festival of tabernacles. The Hebrew is Sukkot. Say Sukkot. Now at Sukkot, what you do is you go up on the last and greatest day of the feast. You go up with what's called your lulav. Say lulav. And your lulav is made up of four different items, but one of them is a palm frond. And you go to the temple of the Lord and you stand there and you celebrate the restoration of this year and everything that God's brought together. And you look ahead to the year to come and, and you celebrate the fact that you worship a God that's making all things right. This is Sukkot. It's the greatest party on the Jewish calendar. Eight days. Eight days. Like, college students got nothing on Sukkot. Seriously. Eight days. Spring break doesn't even last that long. Eight days. This huge celebration of the goodness of God and what he's doing in the world. Watch how Zechariah finishes his vision. Ask yourself, as we look at this, ask yourself this question. Why is the multitude standing, the cloud of witnesses, holding palm fronds? And everyone who survives, all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. Hold on. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. This is not God's people. These are the enemies that have come against Jerusalem. This is Babylon. This is Assyria. This is Rome eventually. This is any enemy that you could ever write. All the people that have ever come against God's people shall go up year after year to worship the... Who's going to go up year after year to worship the king? Say the enemies. The king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Oh, I wish I could explain that. And if any of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. And there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. There shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed in the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Revelation experts, you know that shows up again. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. 
So that all the sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Zechariah says, by persevering through this suffering, by choosing to enroll in the army in allegiance to the slain lamb, by choosing to go and persevere and laying your life down for the readers of Revelation, literally, choosing to fight this battle this way is the only method, Zechariah suggests, that has the possibility of turning the hearts of our enemies towards our God. And so John, when he writes Revelation, has this vision, and the great multitude stands there with palm fronds. Why? Because as this 144,000 prepares to go and lay down their life on behalf of a new kind of kingdom, and a better way, a more true, true, and a bigger reality, the multitude says, this is going to work. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it feels like you're losing every single day you wake up. I know you hear more names, more and more names, more and more names of people that have given their life. It feels like Rome is winning. But the multitude says, don't give up. Because this is what works. And brothers and sisters, I don't, I don't give you a history spoiler alert. It did. It worked. The most powerful empire in the history of the world crumbled because people like the readers of Revelation never gave up. And you ask what happened? What happened is one day somebody handed us the sword. And we thought, great, now we're in charge. And for the last 1,700 years, it hasn't gone. Because we got out of service of slain lamb and into service of Pax Christiana. There is one way that the multitudes stand and testify. But you actually have to believe that this is true. We actually have to believe that giving ourselves to the way of the slain lamb is the thing that works. And this is why we would do this. This is why we fight cancer. This is why we do that. Why? Because we believe that life conquers over death. This is why we fight addiction. Why? Because we believe that there's something better than the despair of sinful depravity. There's something more true. Now, any of you that have fought cancer know that cancer is very real. Do you understand? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Cancer is very, very real. We've all been close to it on one level, either ourselves or somebody close to us. It's very, very real. Death is very, very real. Just last week, we had a family in our church deal with the ever-present death showed up. But you have to, it's very real. I'm not trying to say it's a falsehood, it's a lie. It's very real, but there's something that's more real. There's something that's more true. This is why we would do, why don't we forgive? Why don't we forgive? Like, I'm not just talking like, oh, flippantly, I'm talking about serious wrongs. Like, serious abuses. Why would we forgive that? Because we believe that something is bigger and better than the wrong that was done to us. We believe that mercy, compassion, and the way of the slain lamb is the only thing that can put that thing back together. We have to actually believe that this is true. 
in the way that we do our marriages, in the way that we do our parenting, in the way that we engage our workplace. We have to be a part of that 144,000 that says, I'm not here to fight for me. I'm not here to fight for me. I'm here to lay down me for the sake of putting the world back together. It shows up everywhere. And I haven't been spending a lot of time applying this. I just hope we're intelligent enough to do the application ourselves. Revelation is a tricky book. A lot of times it's not true. I believe you guys are intelligent enough to go, what does this look like in my marriage? What does this look like in my workplace? What does this look like everywhere that I go? The thing that I'm struggling with right now, the place that I'm like, ah, the pain that I brought with me, the frustration that I brought through the doors with me, what does it mean to be enlisted in allegiance to the slain lamb? What does it mean to go lay myself down, my self-interest down? It's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that works. Not with politics. No, no, no. It's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that works. Well, not, no, no, no. It's the only thing that works. Really. Maybe in a spirit. No, it's the only thing that works. Not just in a spiritual conversation. It's the only thing that works. And children of the resurrection have to believe this. Now, if we do, look at what the multitude say. Here's how they close. By the way, all these things references to the Old Testament prophets. Uh, let's put that last one up there. Revelation 7. All these references to the Hebrew scriptures. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Listen to this. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you ultimately believe that that's where this is headed? If that's where you believe this is ultimately headed, that God's ultimately putting it all back together, that's why we'll wake up tomorrow and we'll fight the order of death. Not with this kind of strength, with slain lamb strength, with slain lamb power. This is why you'll wake up tomorrow and forgive, because you believe that ultimately every tear is being wiped away. Every tear is being wiped away. So why would I let those tears define my today? We need to work towards the Lord's table. So I'm going to invite our servers if they want to go back there and get that ready for us. If you're visiting with us here this morning, we have an open table. So that means if you want to uh, celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your family, you need to do that with us this morning. Just hold on to the bread and the juice, and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. A few implications. First implication. The pain is real. I, I, I am not... I have no naive ideas of coming up here and trying to trivialize or minimize the struggle, the pain, the, the wrong that was done to you, the, the stuff that you brought through the doors. It's very, very real. It's very real. But there's something that's more real. 
not together as not real. There's something that's even better, that's bigger, that's deeper, that's truer, that's wider than the stuff that seeks to keep you trapped in despair. Thank you. Next implication. God is dealing with evil. God is dealing with, and he's dealing with evil in lots of ways. I'm sure he's dealing with evil in ways I don't see and I don't understand, and neither do you. I am confident in that. God is dealing with evil. The scriptures tell me that over and over and over again. But one of the things that the scriptures do tell me is that God is dealing with evil by crushing it under your feet, my feet, Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, what? Underneath your feet. God is dealing with evil. He's dealing with evil as we persevere in faithfulness. Believing in a better kingdom order, a better kingdom economy, a better new world order, if you will. Not a socio-political one, but a new kingdom world order. Believing that forgiveness is the way to live in this world. Believing that fighting like life over death, resurrection, is the way when we walk in faithfulness. When you choose to get up tomorrow morning and keep pursuing your children with the fierce love of Jesus Christ, God crushes evil underneath your feet. When you choose to take things, a, a boss at work who treats you unjustly over and over and over again, and you choose to live consistent faithfulness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, against such things, there is no law. I'm going to do those things over and over and over. When you do that, God crushes evil underneath your feet. This 144,000 assembles to go lay their lives down because it's the only thing that truly conquers evil. Next implication. Anytime God's army has acted like a slain lamb, the multitudes respond. My teacher Ray used to always say, he has this big thing, he says he gets all worked up. I would never do that, of course, but he gets all worked up and he, he says, uh, uh, just once, just once, choose the right thing. Just once, forgive. Just once, say no. Just once, every time you make a decision to lay your life down on behalf of something bigger and better than the thing that tries to demand your attention, the kingdom of God takes one inch back. And the multitudes stand around with palm fronds going, this is going to work. If you think it's going to happen by grabbing the swords and fighting back and sticking up for the multitudes go, ah, this isn't what we laid down our life for. It's the only thing that works. The multitudes respond. Next implication. We know how to feel about evil, and we know how to feel about the witness. The word martyr is used multiple times in the book of Revelation, only it doesn't actually mean martyr. It gets more translated. If it's translated correctly, it gets translated as witness. It's a word martyr, but, but that doesn't focus on the death of the individual. It focuses on the witness of the life that was given. We know how to feel about evil. When we watched that video a few years ago of whatever it was, 30 Christians kneeling on the beach of Libya, we know how to feel about the evil that's, that, 
that seeks to take their life. We know how to feel about that. It's not, it's not like tricky to, we know how to feel about evil. But we also know how to feel about 30 members of the 144,000 that went to be dressed in white robes and grabbed some palm fronds because we know how to feel about the witness. Now, for many of us, we won't have to, anytime in the near future, probably give our literal lives. But tomorrow we'll ask you to lay down your life in other ways. Ways that seem maybe way too subtle or trivial. Make no mistake about it. 144,000 go to war against 200 million using a totally different method than the people around them. And ultimately it brings all of God's enemies streaming to the temple to celebrate the festival of Sukkot because God's making everything right. You see, when God, when Jesus came to the meal, we hold the bread and the juice in our hands. It wasn't just a one-time act that he was engaging in. Jesus did not say, don't worry, I went to the cross and took care of it all. Jesus did say, I invite you to take up your cross and follow me. This wasn't just remember one act. This was also an invitation to join me, Jesus would say, in the way that puts the world back together. This is what works. Every week we get to be reminded that this is what works. It worked for us. It works for others. It's what we're called to engage the world with. Jesus took a piece of bread that night. He gave it to his disciples. He broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the slain lamb today. And Jesus took a cup that represented a covenant. And in a lot of ways, this is symbolic of an agreement. When you take and you drink this cup in the ancient Eastern world, it was a way of agreeing to a covenant relationship, to a mission that we would engage in together. This is really our way of saying, Amen. This is, this is enlistment in the 144,000. Jesus took that cup, he passed it amongst his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Just remember Jesus. Father God, I pray that you would teach us about the way of a slain lamb. It is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Everything in us wants to fight to protect ourselves. And God, I pray as we read Revelation, we would be taught. We have these models and these teachers that have gone before us, who not just in a metaphorical way, but in a very literal way, went to lay their lives down. Because it's what the slain, the slain lamb did. It's how they were taught how to engage the world. And the multitudes gathered around the palm front to celebrate the fact that this is how God puts the world back together. Persevere, persevere, persevere. God, I pray you would teach us maybe how to begin. Maybe how to begin in the way of the slain lamb. And then to call us to never give up and to believe that ultimately resurrection it's the last word. 
God, we love you. We want to love you, God. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.